pray. God, here we are. Here we are to worship. Here we are to say that you are our God. And your word is the lamp to our feet. God, open up our minds and our hearts to hear the word you have for us this morning. Speak, O Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. I I agree with Angela that I really enjoy this time of year because I love seeing all the Christmas lights. I love driving around the past couple nights and finally houses and stores have all all the lights uh, on and I love seeing the greens and the reds and the blues and all of that stuff. And I loved pointing out to Daisy and saying, Daisy, look at the lights and it's for Jesus, Jesus' birthday. And it's just so fun to celebrate this time of year. And uh, one of the things that Laura and I enjoy doing is we like to find one of those neighborhoods, you know, where all the houses kind of participate in lighting up the whole neighborhood. We love going and driving through and turning on Christmas music and enjoying that neighborhood. But there's, there's always the one house, the one guy, right? And it's probably a guy. And he said, no, I'm not participating in lighting up my house. There's always the one house that has all the lights off, everything's dark, and it's just, it sticks out like a sore thumb. You see, there's something about the darkness, that darkness of that house that's just, it's so gloomy, it's so depressing when everything out, the light is surrounding it. You see, and the Bible uses this metaphor of light and darkness to talk about God in the world. That the world is a dark place, but yet God, through Jesus Christ, is the light of the whole world. 1 John 1, 5 says this, says, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. At all. God is the light to our world. He illuminates everything. He illuminates what is good, true, and perfect, and beautiful. Now, darkness is the opposite. Darkness is the absence of light, and it's the absence of God. And when humans live in sin and rebellion, we live in darkness. We live in that gloom and that depression. And in many ways, our world, it's a dark place in need of light. Amen? It's a dark place. And in the prophet Isaiah's day, everything seemed totally dark. We're starting a new sermon series through Advent called The Promised Savior. And Isaiah has all of these wonderful promises, these prophecies about a Messiah, a king who would come and bring light in the darkness. Because in Isaiah's day, everything was totally dark. King Ahaz was in power, and he was known to be a very evil king. In fact, 2 Kings says this about King Ahaz. He says, Unlike David his father, he did not do what is right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He engaged in the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places, on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. In other words, King Ahaz worshipped other gods. He worshipped idols, and he did not obey God's laws. And the Bible says he was nothing like his father David. Now, we we all know that David was a sinner, a very big one, but there were certain qualities about David that he... He came to represent to the people God's ideal king, the ideal king of Israel. So when the prophets were prophesying about a king who would come, they said that this this new king, this Messiah, would be a descendant of David. He would be from this line because God had promised to establish a, a son of David upon the throne. And so God said this descendant of David would be a new king, a new Messiah, who would bring light to the nation. So for Isaiah, clearly Ahaz, he was not the Messiah. <laughs> there, there, was, there was no question about that. And the nation was following in the way of its leader. You see, the Bible shows that in many ways, nations often become like the leader who's in charge. See, the character of a nation's leader really matters. 
And when there was an evil king who was in charge, guess what? The nation started becoming evil themselves. And so when King Ahaz was in power, they were falling away from God and into further darkness. And so in addition to this darkness of sin, there, were, there was this brewing darkness to the northeast of Israel called the superpower of Assyria. They had been slowly over time building power through violence and coercion and oppression, and Israel was next. And so they came to attack Israel, and they, the, the area that they inflicted the most damage was in the northern part of the country in an area called Zebulun and Naphtali, named after two of the tribes of Israel. And I want to show you what that looks like on a map here. Uh, if you can kind of see, uh, very up in the north, not the, not the green one on the coast, but the yellow one, that's Naphtali. And then that little purple square below it, that is Zebulun. And then you can see there's a little body of water right there. That is the Sea of Galilee. Okay, and so Assyria... They are to the northeast off the map here, but when they would come down to attack Israel, they came from that way and they started in the north. Now, this was the area that was hit the most, but the whole nation felt the terror of this superpower. And I think it was kind of like 9-11. When 9-11 happened in our country, our whole nation was shaken. The whole nation w was shaken. But in some ways, you could say that the areas that were affected the most was probably New York City, in a few other areas, right? But the entire nation was, was shaken. So in the same way, the whole country of Israel is shaken by the superpower of Assyria coming. But the areas that was hit hardest was Zebulun and Naphtali, the area around the Sea of Galilee. And so it was a very dark time for the country, just as it was for America in 9-11. And it was in these darkest of times that God would speak through his prophets to give a message of hope to give a message of light in this darkness. And he, God was saying to the people that this darkness wasn't going to last forever because a new king, a promised king, was coming who would bring light. And so God used the prophet Isaiah to bring this message to the community. And I invite you to open your Bibles. I want us to look at this prophecy of hope. If you would turn to Isaiah 9, it was the text that was read this morning. And I want to highlight a few things, but let me reread to you verses 1 and 2. Isaiah says this, his promise of hope. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Now, the first promise of hope that Isaiah gives the people is this. The promised king will bring light to the world. The promised king will bring light to the world. Isaiah is saying, even though the days are dark now, even though it's gloomy now, even though everything around you seems like God might not be in charge, no, 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 there will be light that will come. In the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the two areas which were initially attacked by the Assyrians, they are in some way going to be the special recipients of God's promise. And Isaiah says God is going to honor the Galilee of the nations. Now this area of Zebulun and Naphtali around the Sea of Galilee, it was referred to at one point as the Galilee of the nations. Why is that? Because this area because it was being in the northernmost part of the country, 
was often the area that other nations might have migrated to and lived in. And so they had, Israel had the most foreign contact in the north. And so this was an area where foreigners often lived. And I believe this is a hint from the prophet Isaiah that this promised king isn't going to be just for Israel only. He's going to be a king for the nations, a king for the whole world. I like what uh, biblical scholar Gary Smith says about this passage. He says, this verse surprisingly predicts that the least likely area of Israel, the far northern section that was the most military oppressed and most influenced by pagans, will in some way be honored by God when he sends a new light in the future. And friends, this promise was fulfilled through Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus' ministry was inaugurated at his baptism when the Holy Spirit came down, right? And then he is thrust into the wilderness to be tempted by, by the devil. And this already is foreshadowing and beginning his showdown with the powers of darkness. And in the wilderness, light is already overcoming the darkness. And right after his temptation, Matthew tells us what? That Jesus, Matthew 4.13, went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake, that's the Sea of Galilee, in the area of where? Zebulun and Naphtali. See, the promise is coming true. The Bible's true. The Bible promised so many things hundreds of years in advance, and it came true. And then Matthew quotes another part from Isaiah, or he quotes this part from Isaiah, that the people walking in darkness, this area that had been in darkness, they have seen a great light. And then he goes on to say in Matthew 4, 23, that Jesus went throughout where? Galilee. He went throughout Galilee of the nations, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Light is invading the darkness, just where Isaiah said it would. It's beginning right there in Zebulun and Naphtali, in Galilee of the nations. So the promised king is bringing light to the nation. And Jesus, he was a light for this specific area, uh, right? before it, and That was prophesied beforehand. But Jesus is also the light for the whole nation and the whole world. When Jesus came, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, the world can be, be described as Isaiah said it, people walking in darkness. Notice that it's not just that the world's in darkness, not just that the world is a dark place, but actually it's full of people walking in darkness. People who have walked away from their creator Living in rebellion and sin against God, they are walking in the path of darkness. And not just regular old darkness. Isaiah says it's a land of deep darkness. It's not very good news, but we know it's true. The world is entrenched in the power of sin. We have this force that's at work in the world that keeps us from following God, that keeps us from all the promises and the light and the hope and the joy that God has for us. There's a power that keeps us away from that. The seductive forces of violence and greed and lust are at work in this world. And the devil is blinding people from seeing the light. You know, it's not just that the world is just a little bit off kilter. You ever have that friend that comes over to your house and they see, they see a painting on the wall and they're like, hold on, hold on a second. Okay, I got it. I got it. It's fixed. Anybody, is anybody that person, anybody bold enough to admit that they see something a little off kilter? They're like, all right, let me fix that. Okay, no one here is bold enough, but I'm sure you're out there. Okay, I see a couple of you. So you see it off kilter. You just want to fix it. You just want to get it just perfectly so, just level. And I think some people think the world is like that. Oh, if I can just, just, oh, just get that world, just get it a little bit better, just a little bit more education. 
oh, just a little bit better system, just a different politician, just a different little thing would make everything better in this place. Friends, the world's not just a little off kilter. It's a land of deep darkness. But you know what the good news of the prophet, the prophet Isaiah said to us? That the land of deep darkness will see a great light. The only thing that can overcome deep darkness is a great light. And this promised king, he is going to be a great light, a light that is magnificent, that is brilliant, that illuminates everything, that when you finally see this light, it will be like you were blind and now you can see. Everything is totally changed when we have the light of Christ in our lives. And then Isaiah says that this light has, has dawned. When he says this light has dawned, he's saying this is just the beginning. This is just the beginning. The day is going to get brighter. It's like the yeast working through the dough. It's going to expand and expand. When Jesus came into the world, it was the dawning of a new day, of God's new creation. That God is actually at work right now in this world, bringing light to the darkness. So it's not that we're just sitting around waiting until we go to heaven when we die. Thank the Lord for that promise. But actually, God right now, in the midst of the evil, in the midst of the brokenness, is birthing a new world through Jesus Christ and through his kingdom. And that's good news. And we get to participate in this promise. We get to participate in this light penetrating the darkness around us. So the promised king, number one, is going to bring light into the world. Number two, the promised king will liberate the oppressed. The promised king will liberate the oppressed. Isaiah continues this prophecy, this promise of a king, with verse 3. He says, You have enlarged the, the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. So Isaiah is saying the people are going uh, to exp- uh, rejoice because they have a connection with this king. And because of that, they're going to be exceedingly happy. They're going to be exceedingly happy, and the king himself will increase their joy. Why are they going to be rejoicing? Look look at verse 4. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Isaiah sees a day that when the superpower, the the forces of oppression in this world will finally be done away with. God is going to do away with all forms of oppression. How is he going to do it? How is he going to get rid of the kingdoms of, 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 Babylon, of, of Babylon and Rome, all these people that came and oppressed the people? Well, look what it says. It says, for as in the day of Midian's defeat. Okay, that's kind of a weird phrase, right? Well, this is a reference to the story of Gideon. And if you don't know this story, or if you, don't, or if you need a refresher, you can turn to Judges 6 and 7 and read it on your own. But let me refresh it for you. It's a story about where God uh, takes a very small army. In fact, he keeps whittling down the army, smaller and smaller and smaller. He says, no, 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 that's not small enough. So finally, where he gets a very, very small army to take on a very vast one. And the idea was that there is no way humans could get the credit for the victory. There's absolutely no way. This This is an exceedingly small amount of people to take on a vast army. And so Isaiah is saying that God is going to overcome oppression with something that is seemingly so small and insignificant you would hardly believe it. You won't hardly believe it. You see, God was going to take something so small, so insignificant in the town of Bethlehem that would overcome the world's oppression. 
a little baby boy was born that Christmas morning. And that boy would grow up and gather around him 12 disciples and others, a ragtag group of followers, and those people would overturn the entire world. The, most, the small, insignificant group of Jews in one of the smallest parts of the world would be the means by which God was going to overcome all the oppression in this world. Can you believe it? It's almost unbelievable. This is God's plan. N.T. Wright says that the day that Jesus died on the cross was the day the revolution began. That Jesus launched a revolution to liberate us from all forms of oppression, from sin, from Satan, from death, and from all the ways that people seek to dominate and oppress others. He has launched a kingdom not of this world. And through that, Jesus has broken every yoke. The kingdom of Jesus breaks into say that Jesus is Lord. And because Jesus is Lord, all oppressions shall cease in his name. All yokes shall be removed except for that of the yoke of Jesus. And what does Jesus say? My yoke is easy. My burden is light. You see, the kings of the world, they ruled by this metaphor of a yoke, you know, the thing they put on an animal, by rods, by force, by coercion. But this king is going to lead not with the powers of this world, but through sacrificial love. You see, if the world would just embrace a kingdom of sacrificial love and would renounce the powers of oppression and coercion and darkness, gosh, oppression would be abolished in Jesus' name. If we could just see it, if we could just embrace it. One of my favorite Christmas songs is O Holy Night. And I love the verse that says, Truly he taught us to love one another. His law is love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break for the slave is our brother and in his name all oppression shall cease. Praise be to God. You see, Isaiah sees a vision. He sees an ideal future where this king is going to end all oppression and he's even going to end the tools that keep it going. Look at in verse 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. It will be fuel for the fire. In other words, war will be over. All the conflict, all the oppression. Jesus has launched a revolution of love and peace, and that's the kind of king he is. He drives out the darkness of oppression and brings in the light of brotherly love of all humankind. So the promised king will liberate the oppressed. And finally, number three this morning, the promised king will rule a just and peaceful kingdom. The promised king will rule a just and peaceful kingdom. How is this king going to bring in this light and this freedom? Verse 6. For unto, unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. For unto us a child is born. Gosh, how can you not think of Handel's Messiah when you, when you I just can't help, help but thinking about that song when you hear those words. They're amazing words, amazing promise. You see, God, he could have destroyed all the kingdoms of the world in an instant, right? I mean, God could have done that. He has the power to do anything. He could have snapped his fingers and said, no more Assyria, no more Babylon, no more Rome, you're done. But no, when we look for God's answer of deliverance against, the oppre- uh, against all the oppressive governments of this world, we don't see another army. We don't see a more powerful army of angels. We don't see all the violence that we see in this world. We see a tiny child, a royal child that is born, a son who is given. You see, the only way darkness is overcome is through the light. 
The only way that oppression is overcome is through sacrificial love. And the only way that the power and violence of this world is overcome is through humble love. Love is the only power that turns an enemy into a friend. It's the only power in the world that can do that. So humble love is how God is going to restore this world through a tiny child. And then it says the government will be on his shoulders. Now that's kind of a very interesting phrase. What, you know, the, the way that a king's power is described. And I want you to hear how the early church father, Tertullian, interpreted this phrase. He says, now what king is there who bears the ensign of his dominion upon his shoulder and not rather upon his head as a diadem or in his hand as a scepter, or else as a mark in some royal apparel. But the one new king of the ages, Jesus Christ, carry on, on his shoulder both the power and the excellence of his new glory, even his cross, so that he might thenceforth reign from the tree as Lord. You see, many of the early theologians of the church, they interpreted this phrase, the government will be on his shoulders. They understood that to mean the cross. Because Jesus carried the cross on his shoulders on the way to Calvary. That is how the government was on his shoulders. And that is the irony of this whole story. The torture device of the most powerful, violent, military superpower in the world became the means by which Jesus was enthroned as the king of the world. Isn't that amazing? God has taken the most oppressive tool at that time, to be the means by which he became king of the world. And it's primarily the cross that shows us the character of this king. He's a king, he's a king like nobody else. And then Isaiah gives the famous four names. This king will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, counselor is not your therapist. Your, a counselor in, in, in the biblical context, this is somebody who could provide wise advice. This was the essential quality a king would need to rule a land, to rule a people. So he's going to be the wisest king, the best king that can rule his people. And then Isaiah sees this tiny child, but he says, hold on a sec, mighty God. This tiny child is mighty God himself. And he says, everlasting father. Jesus said, I and the father are one. I'm in the father and the father is in me. And then Isaiah calls him the prince of peace the one who administrates peace in his kingdom. Jesus is the one who brings peace in our world. He does it by reconciling us to God. He's the one mediator between God and mankind. There's no other mediation. We can't come to God any other way, by any other means, by any good deeds, by any other person or system. Only through Jesus Christ do we have peace with God. And then when God reconciles us to himself, he reconciles us to one another, that we become in the same family. We become brothers and sisters. We become one in this kingdom that God is building. One of the early church Christians, Justin Martyr, he lived in the second century AD. and He describes what was happening at that time. He said, we used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and pray for our enemies. This was a revolution. The revolution has begun and it was continuing on. And then Isaiah is concluding with this thought in verse 7. He says, Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Isaiah is saying, 
His kingdom is the most glorious. It is the most glorious, and the greatness of it will increase. The kingdom will keep expanding, and Jesus will reign forever and ever. And in his kingdom, there will be two qualities, justice and righteousness. Justice is making sure everybody uh, is treated fairly and rightly. And righteousness is being right toward God, our holiness towards God. So in other words, Jesus' kingdom will be marked by loving God and loving our neighbors. Loving God and loving our neighbors. Justice and righteousness. All humanity living at peace with one another. Isaiah is seeing off in the distance nothing less than the renewal of the whole world. God's new creation. Friends, Christ has now come. The revolution has begun, but we know the kingdom is not fully here. And that's what Advent is designed to help us think about. We're preparing for Christ's first coming, and he, he has come, but yet we know that there will be, a, will be a second coming, that Christ will come again, and he will make all of these visions come true. Because often, don't you wonder, gosh, is this world ever going to be fixed? Is the brokenness ever going to be done away with? Is the darkness ever going to be able to be overcome? And the answer is yes. Yes. Why? Isaiah says at the very last end of verse 7, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord Almighty. In other words, the passion and commitment of God's heart is to see his world restored and renewed. That is what God, God is passionate about. He has a zeal to accomplish his mission. And praise be to God, bringing in the kingdom is not up to us. Jesus will bring in the kingdom. Jesus will build his church. The zeal of God will accomplish this. There's a recent story about Eugene Peterson, who recently uh, passed away, I think about last year, around this time. And uh, at his funeral, his son Leif uh, shared a story. And he basically was saying that Eugene Peterson had everybody fooled. He wrote all these books, wrote like 50 to 100 books, and translated the Bible, and had all these different things, scholarly articles and whatnot. And basically his son said, Dad, you had everybody fooled because you really only had one message. You only really had one thing to say, and it's the same thing that you kept saying to me all throughout my entire life. In fact, when, when Leif was young, Eugene Peterson would come into his room, and he would tell his son to his sleeping head the same message over and over. And it was this, God loves you, he's on your side, he's coming after you, he's relentless. He's relentless. God is relentless to save you and to save our world. He would do anything. He gave his one and only son that you might have eternal life with him forevermore. And now Christ has come. And he is still relentless to save you, to bring light to your family, to bring light to your life, and to bring light to this whole world. Friends, we have this promise of this promised king. What hope we have in Jesus Christ. And now because we are in Jesus, because we are in this kingdom, we also bring light to the world. You want to know what Christians do? We bring light to the world, we liberate the, the oppressed, and we participate in this kingdom of just, that is just and that brings peace. We join with Jesus, what Jesus is doing bringing light to the world. And the zeal of God goes with us. Do you ever wonder if God is with us? He is with us. And his zeal goes with us to accomplish his task. We're not on our own. As we strive to, to bring renewal to our church, renewal to our facility, we're not doing this on our own. God, the zeal of God goes with us. God is with us to bring his light to the world. 
And it's not just he's with us, it's his zeal, it's his passionate commitment to bring in his kingdom, and he wants to do it through you and I. Gosh, what hope we have in Jesus Christ. So friends, this Christmas season, may you experience the hope of this promised king, and may you participate in bringing light to the world through him. Let's pray.